do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can. Uh, pull out a device if you need to, but get with me to Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, so the final chapter of the Bible. I'm going to pray first, and then we'll get right after it. So let's bow. Lord, we pray right now, as we open your word, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to each and every person who can hear my voice. We pray, God, that you would help us to think through the significance of the resurrection and the hope that that offers us. So, Lord, we commit this time to you, and we ask, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, would be helping people to consider the reality of a risen and reigning Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. On the very first Easter, followers of Jesus were disappointed, would be a mild way to put it. They thought that he was the Messiah. They thought that uh, he was going to be the Savior, and then they saw him executed. And there was a tremendous amount of loss and disappointment and confusion. And then a couple of the followers went to the place of burial to do some things that were culturally appropriate in that moment to anoint the body with spices. And they went to the tomb where they knew that his body had been laid and the tomb was empty and he was not there. And angels were there and they described to these women what had happened. Jesus is not here. He has risen just as he said. And then they give instruction to the women, but there is this reality in the, in, in the story of bewilderment. I was looking at it again this week, and I looked at, you know, there are four different stories that kind of tell the, the same thing from different vantage points, but there was a word that kept coming up. It's bewilderment, that when people realized that Jesus was not dead anymore, but was in fact alive, there was a surprise feature. So Matthew 28 puts it like this. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Jesus Christ is alive and everyone is bewildered by it and a question emerges what does this mean if jesus was executed and yet is alive what does this mean there's a group of people uh, that called themselves the inklings there's a group of writers in london and they would gather at a pub and they would discuss their writings and they would interact with each other and critique graciously critique their work and And uh, they would share with each other. A couple of the individuals for sure were Christians. I'm not sure about the whole lot of them, but they they were an incredible group of individuals. One of them, J.R.R. Tolkien, wrote a very famous work, and most of you would be familiar with it. It's a multi-volume series called The Lord of the Rings. And it's a beautiful story, and if you've not read it or watched it yet, um, I'm going to do some spoilers, but I feel like if you've not done it yet, Maybe you won't, and maybe my spoilers will actually encourage you. But as the story is going on, there's a fellowship of very odd individuals. There's a wizard, there's a dwarf, there's elves, there's hobbits, and they've gathered together, and they're on a journey to save their world. 
And one of the main characters named Gandalf, he's the wizard, and he's very powerful and very wise and insightful, and you in some ways consider him to be the leader, but he gets into a battle, and he's fighting a creature, and he defeats the creature. But as the creature is falling off of this mountain, the creature does something that causes Gandalf to also fall down the mountain to his demise. And in that moment, as you're watching the story unfold, there's this kind of hopelessness about it. And you begin to think, man, how on earth is this group of people ever going to accomplish their mission without him? Well, much later on in the story, Gandalf re-emerges back from the dead, so to speak. And one of the hobbits named Sam Ganji, he puts it like this. He beautifully puts into words what we feel when we realize the significance of what a resurrection might mean. Sam Gamgee says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I myself was dead. Then he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? If you're alive, that means an awful lot for everything. Is everything sad going to come untrue? That question that Sam Gamgee asks is a very appropriate question for Easter Sunday. When we realize that Jesus is back from the dead, we begin to ask the question, what does this mean? And could it be that what this man has accomplished will result in everything sad coming untrue? Well, I want to answer that together with you, and I want to do that from Revelation chapter 22. I want to show you the very end of the Bible, which gives us a a future vision. It's a glimpse into the future. It's showing us what God is one day ultimately going to do because of the cross work of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 22 gives us this beautiful picture of the city of God. It's a bookend. In fact, there are similarities between the last chapter of the Bible and the very first chapter of the Bible. There are things that kind of occupy both of those events. And in the first part, God is creating and he makes this beautiful place called paradise. It's Eden. And he puts humanity in it, and there's unhindered fellowship with God, and it's very beautiful, and it's very perfect and pristine, and God says, you can eat freely from any tree in here. Enjoy this world that I've made for you. They reject God's goodness, and they turn inward and toward themselves. Uh, to, to simplify a complex story, they, they sin against God, and they have to leave the garden. But Revelation chapter 22 tells us we're going back. And it tells us at the very end of the Bible that God is going to restore the garden. And humanity, once again, will be able to live in unhindered fellowship with God. So look at it. Revelation 22, we'll put verses up on the screen. I want to show you three things about this future reality that we have to look forward to. In the city of God, there is life, there is healing, and there is fellowship with God. So there is life. In the city of God, you, it's going to be an experience where we live. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as, as clear as crystal, crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now, if you've interacted with Revelation before, you understand the limitations of human language. John, the author, is grasping at words to to try to describe what he continues to see. He uses metaphors and symbolism, and so here he's saying, in this city, there's a river, 
And I don't know exactly what that looks like or what that entails, but this is the river of the water of life, and it is flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. It's flowing down the middle of the great street of the city, and on the side of the river is a tree. And I don't know if there's an archway and the, you know, the trunk of the tree is going down on both sides, but there is a tree, and it is the tree of life. Here's the point. In the city of God that is to come, it is a place of life. Now, presently, we deal with death. Remember at the very beginning, God said, you can eat freely from any tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For when you do, you shall surely die. And the human experience has been one of death over and over and over again throughout the Bible and personal experience. We understand this to be true. The last 12 months have taught us anything. It's the fragility of the human experience. There's an invisible virus that some people can get and be totally fine, but some can get and they can be healthy and young, and vibrant, and it can decimate them. Not just a pandemic that we've been through recently, but throughout human history, there's been all kinds of pandemics, and pestilence, and concern. There are viruses, and things like cancer, and there are things like tragedy, and we experience this over, and over, and over again. I've done a bunch of funerals uh, throughout the course of my ministry, quite a few in the last year even, And every funeral that I've been to, there's a sentiment about death. And it's expressed usually like this. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not how it is supposed to be. Death feels strange. I got a phone call a handful of years ago. I was sitting in my office and a family called the church and they said, could you please come? And I went to the house and um, the family was there. It was, um, you know, the mom and the dad and kids and cousins and a bunch of people, but the patriarch of the family, the grandfather, had passed away. And he was in his recliner. And and so they asked for me to come so I could pray together with them. And I was sitting there, and, you know, most of our experience, we sanitize the experience of death. And so we never really interact with a dead body. But I remember sitting there, and there there was a strangeness to it. It was odd. It, was, it felt like this is not right. This is not how it is supposed to be. Now, in the future, God is telling us there is a city that is marked by life. There's a place where people will live forever. What if I told you that it is possible to believe that you could live forever? And not just some, you know, experience of mediocrity like permanent mediocrity. No, I'm saying the most alive you've ever been, the most excited you've ever been, the most purposeful you've ever been. What if I told you there were a way to experience life forever? That's exactly what the Bible is presenting to us. John 3, 16 puts it like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There's a way to experience life, and it is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and by faith in him, you have this future hope of glory of living in a city where life is a dominant feature. Now, if that is true, imagine with me what it would do to the people who believe it. If you believe that you will live forever, imagine how invincible you might be. Well, that's exactly what happened with the early followers of Christ They literally changed the world. 
There was, there was nothing and no one that could prevent them from proclaiming the reality of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. They experienced imprisonment and beatings and persecutions and loss of possessions and even loss of life. And they did that because they knew we're following a king who you killed, but he's still alive. And he promised that if we believe in him, the same is true for us. Nothing can stop them. There is a city where a river of life is flowing from the throne and from the lamb, Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one. And on the sides of the river stand the tree of life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God offers eternal life? Well, a second feature of the city is the healing. There's a healing reality about this city. It's a place where things that were broken or beyond repair are fixed and restored. This city is incredible because it's a place where all of the hurt and the pain seem to be evaporated. There's healing for the nations. Look at verse 2 again. It says, On the side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What a beautiful picture. The crop of this tree is the healing of the nations. But there's an implication then. The nations need healing. The nations are broken. There's something wrong about the way that humanity interacts with each other. By the grace of God, I've had the privilege of going to probably a hand, at least a handful of different nations on mission trips and things of that nature. And uh, one of the things that has been surprising to me is the fact that not everyone, this might be news to you, but not everyone on the planet believes that the United States of America is the greatest nation to ever exist. In fact, there are places that by just being an American, you can go there and be despised. See, there's a, there's a way in which we relate to other people that's broken. There's a hostility between peoples. The nations need healing, but the plan of God has always involved the nations. From the very beginning, God said to his people, you will be blessed, and all nations of the earth will be blessed through you. The intention all along has been that God will restore all people to himself. The nations need healing. Now, it's not just that we're geographically separated from each other. It can happen within the same territory. There's a hostility between peoples. Subcultures can hate other subcultures. We look at other people and we despise them. And then we're not honest about how we feel. And so what we need is the work of God, the healing of the nations. There's a, there's a tree in the city of God with leaves that will bring about the healing of the nations, and we desperately need that. And you might be thinking, okay, dude, you're bringing up stuff that upsets me. Uh, they might not like us, but the feeling is mutual. You see, all of that is evidence of this need for healing. There's a hostility between us that Jesus Christ is seeking to, to fix. Look at Ephesians 2. For he himself, talking about Jesus the Christ, he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, heaven is a place with different peoples, and here's what's incredible about it. You're actually going to enjoy it. They're going to be like you. There, there will be some who are like you and some who are unlike you, and you will like all of it because the city of God is a place for the nations. 
And that work of God begins even now in the hearts and lives of his people. And you might be saying, okay, dude, you're, you're just being a woke pastor. I'm not a woke pastor, I'm just awake. And I see the brokenness in our world and I think it needs repair. And God says, I'm doing something about that. This place is a place of healing. It's healing for the nations. It's healing of all that is broken. Look at verse three. No longer will there be any curse. The curse is something we found in Genesis chapter three. It's what happens as a result of rebellion against God. Everything and everyone now experiences a brokenness. It dominates the human experience. Consider with me all that is broken. Our relationship with God is broken. Um, humanity was banished from the garden. They had to leave. They could no longer be in Eden with unhindered fellowship with God. Even before that, they hid from God because they knew what they did was wrong. There was a shame about their rebellion. That relationship that we once had, that pristine relationship with God, is, has been affected by sin. Our relationship with each other is also affected. You look at Adam blaming Eve and Eve blaming the serpent. You begin to realize there's something wrong with even how we deal with each other. They have children and those children get jealous and angry and murderous and one murders the other. Relationships are broken. Some of you who are here this morning, you feel this. You have, you have broken relationships. You have people with which you have been in conflict with and it is unresolved relationships with each other is broken. Not only that, we also have inner conflict. We're not okay with ourselves. We're lacking in inner peace. We, we have a lack of confidence. We have a lack of just peace within us. We're disquieted within ourselves. We, we, we feel uncertain or unclear or despondent because we know that we are broken. Even the world itself is broken the way that weather systems and the earth operates is, is affected by sin. We live in a world where if you live on the coast, a tsunami could come and wipe out your town. We live in a place where you could be sleeping in your home and an earthquake could hit and your home could fall on your head. My wife was on the, the last flight out of Haiti when the earthquake struck and decimated that island. We live in a place where Weather patterns and things of the earth can occur, and it reveals the brokenness of the world that we live in. It's an unsafe place. My Uncle Ron, in his home just right over here, was on the phone one day when phones were tied to a wall. You had a cord, and he was on the phone, and a tornado hit the wall that the phone was connected to, and it knocked him away and knocked off the side of the house. We live in a world that is broken, we are broken. Our relationship with God is broken. Everything is broken. But here's the beauty of this coming city. There will no longer be any curse. All that is broken will be repaired. The hymn writers love this phrase. They love this idea. And so multiple hymn writers have put it this way. The work, the saving work of Jesus Christ his reparative and restorative work in the world is so comprehensive that it will occur as far as the, as the curse is found. Everywhere you find brokenness, Jesus has come to repair it. Let me show it to you in Revelation chapter 21. If you just glance over at the previous chapter, it puts it like this. In Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You see, what Jesus has come to do is he has come to undo the effects of the curse. And as far as the curse is found, he will do a restorative work that will eclipse the brokenness in our lives. Now, this is a profound reality, but it is true. God is going to do something that will compensate us for all the pain that we've been through. One of the other inklings, uh, one of the other guys who met in that pub to discuss their writing, his name was Clive Staples Lewis. We know him as C.S. Lewis. He wrote a lot of incredible works, but he put it like this in his work, The Great Divorce. He said, some people say of suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. There are things that some of you are going through right now that, that I'm at a loss for words to try to comfort. There are things that are happening that are so broken that my heart just aches. And the only thing that I can cling to is this reality that the Bible keeps putting forward. There's a day coming where God will, will make this right. And I wish it were now, and I wish that things would just quickly get repaired, and I wish that things would be restored on the fast track, but the truth is a lot of what we have to look forward to is in that city of God. And we are actually growing in our longing for, for our arrival there. There's a brokenness about this world that reminds us the only hope that we have is the hope of what God is one day going to do. And he has begun that work through the ministry the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but one day it will come to consummation. And we will enter into that city, and we will experience joy. We've been reading with my kids this version of the Pilgrim's Progress. It's really beautiful. Um, it's called Little Pilgrim's Journey. And it's the journey of a Christian boy to the city of God. And when he gets there, man, when he gets there, what a beautiful reality. That's what we're going for, friends. We're going to a place of healing. We're going to a place where God will set all things right. Well, the third main feature of this city is that God is there. We will have fellowship with him. He's there. Look at verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. God won't be this abstract reality. He won't be this theoretical thing. He won't be remote. He will be there. His zip code, if you like, will be 61072 or 61115. His area code will be, if you like, 815. God will be there with us. He, he won't be this far-off concept. He will be there. Now, we get glimpses of that now in church, in marriage, with our children, with the God-glorifying hobbies that we have. There are times when I'll strap on a wakeboard and I'll hop out on a lake and I'll be gliding across it and I'll be thinking, God is here. There are times when we're worshiping together and we're caught up into the moment and we realize God is here. But there's a day coming where God won't be something we glimpse at. His presence won't be something that we just kind of feel or sense. He will literally be present. 
God will be there. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city in which we dwell. His people are there as well. His servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. His servants, his people will be with, together with him. This is the beautiful reality of what it is. And you might say, well, I don't want to serve anybody, and I don't want anyone's name on my forehead. Uh, but this is an indication of the people who will occupy the city are people who love the king of the city. I remember um, being in a public space with my wife and her family, and I'm super socially awkward, and some of you have picked up on that already, but I was just standing off on the side staring at Ashley, and uh, my mother-in-law was talking to a friend, and the friend said to her, there's a strange boy staring at your daughter. (laughs) And she said, well, that's actually Ash's, uh, at that time, boyfriend. But, you know, now somebody could say, that's Ash's husband. And I don't recoil at that designation. I love it, right? When you love somebody and your greatest reference point is to them, that's what we're talking about with Christianity. His name will be on our foreheads. We're, we're going to say, look, I'm here because of him. I'm here because of what he's done. He is mine and I am his. I will serve him in this city, but I get to dwell in this city with him forever. I will see his face and his name will be on me. Is that what you most want in this world? That's what you were created for. You were created to know God. St. Augustine put it like this. You, God, have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And maybe the reason why you're so frustrated and, 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 and just so exhausted is because you've not found that rest yet. And God is saying, I want you to be mine. I want you to live in my city together with me. You will be there and you will see my face. God's presence will be enough. Look at verse five. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. Chapter 21 tells us, there, there won't even be a sun or moon because God himself will provide all that we need. We're so dependent upon the sun right now, but God will provide for us everything that we need. His presence will be enough. It will be more than enough. He will light the way for us in this city and we will be there forever. They will reign, those who, who are servants of the Most High, with his name on their, for, on their foreheads. They will reign forever and ever. Psalm 46 verse 4 puts it like this, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. He's within her and she will not fail. And so the question that Sam Gamgee asks, is everything sad coming untrue? We can answer with a confident yes. Everything sad will come untrue because of Jesus Christ. So here's our final question. How do I get in on this? If this is true, if Jesus is alive and if he's going to make all things right again, if he's going to undo the effects of the curse, how do I know that I can be there? How can I land in that city? How do I get in on this? And the answer is very simple. Believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. Believe on the one who died and yet lives. Believe on the lamb who was slain. And, and is now at the center of the throne of God, and we will worship him forever because he was slain. Believe in him, and you will receive life everlasting. Let's pray.
Lord, we ask right now that each and every one of us on this Easter morning would be very aware of your reality and your invitation. You are offering yourself to us. And all we have to do is acknowledge our need and express faith in what Jesus did. And Lord, we desperately want to live in that city with you. We look forward to that day. So Maranatha, Lord, come Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.